breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. You're listening to ReachMD XM157 the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Many patients who present to their primary care physicians for specific medical problems are suffering from a psychiatric illness that they're already taking medication or under care for. Today, to discuss the role of the psychiatrist in taking care of these patients, we are talking with Dr. Nechama Dresner, an associate professor of clinical psychiatry and obstetrics and gynecology of the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and director of Wellsprings Health Associates. Thank you, Dr. Dresner. What I'd like to focus on is the, the patient who has a psychiatric illness that they are hopefully under treatment for, whether it's anxiety, depression, or any other psychiatric illness, who then has to face the challenges of a medical condition, whether it's pregnancy, surgery, and talk a little bit about the relationship between these two illnesses and particularly focus on some of the drug issues that we run into in a patient who's on medication. So first, let's start by talking about the patient who is on medication, whether it be for anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, who becomes pregnant? First and foremost, I think, is communication. Communication between the psychiatrist and the primary care provider is paramount. The patient may provide you with some data, may describe themselves as feeling stable or having a stable working relationship with their mental health care provider. That's something that the OBGYN really needs to confirm. And making that, uh, opening that 
line of communication, making that link is essential to the cohesive care of the patient so that you don't find yourself down the road in some kind of a crisis deciding, realizing that, oh, the patient stopped taking their medication and didn't tell their psychiatrist and here I'm left holding the bag. Very commonly, women who become pregnant and are on psychotropic medications spontaneously discontinue their, on their psychotropic own. They just medications yeah. without the advice of a physician because very frequently these women are not being cared for by a mental health care provider. They're getting their medications from a primary care doctor, from their internist, from their family practitioner, from the student health service at school, from their OBGYN. If they were under care of a psychiatrist, they would call that individual hopefully and say, I just missed my period. I just found out I'm pregnant. What should I do with that medication? And if the psychiatrist knows what to do, they would advise them what to do. If that's not their area of expertise, hopefully they would get it, <laughs> get that information, or refer them to somebody who has that as their expertise in their practice for consultation. But frequently, it's up until the first obstetric visit at eight weeks that patient's been off medication. Well, sure, because their perception is that any medication is dangerous exactly. to the pregnancy. And 75% of those individuals have a recurrence of their depression in the first trimester. So abrupt discontinuation of antidepressant medications without supervision leads to a 75% recurrence rate of depression in the first trimester. So that's just a bad idea. How often do you find that even when you've reassured a patient that it is perfectly okay to take a particular medication in pregnancy, that they decline because they're nervous about it. They don't believe that their pregnancy is um, going to be safe. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I know you have this experience. I certainly do. I'm sure many of our listeners do. Patients come in, having been on the internet, sometimes bringing me articles about the dangers or the concerns about psychotropics in pregnancy. And I think it's extremely important to be educated enough to discuss risk and benefit with these individuals. There is no known clinical risk in terms of exposure, for instance, to serotonergic antidepressant medications in pregnancy. They're not teratogens. They're not associated with neurobehavioral defects. Even some of the recent concerns that have led to black box warnings are based on retrospective reviews of large numbers of exposures, which are not just to that single medication. So there's no clean study. And actually, there's never going to be a clean study. So it really is on the burden of the caregiver to either have an expert who can discuss that with patients or have a resource. For instance, at Harvard Medical School, there's uh, Lee Cohen has a women's health program, and they have a women's health newsletter that you can subscribe to online, and they give you monthly the most up-to-date reports on what research is being done. For instance, lamictal or lamotrigine is being used as a substitute for lithium in treating bipolar patients in pregnancy. Is it safer? Does it work? Not that I necessarily want an OBGYN prescribing lithium to a pregnant patient, but for all of us to have that little bit of expertise, that little bit of information about what's cutting edge. What's in the literature is four years old. Any article that I could give you about what psychotropics are safe to take in pregnancy is three or four years old. And so having that current update, you know, on a monthly basis from the place where they're doing that research is a great resource. I, pub- I print those up and have them in the waiting room of my office so the patients can look at that. Another psychiatric illness that the obstetrician needs to be familiar with is the person who has a long-term eating disorder and then becomes pregnant And the concern is how are they going to deal with weight gain, changing body image? Can you give your perspective on that? Again, these can be some very difficult patients. Uh, Very frequently, women with eating disorders have a tendency to minimize. Part of the the dynamic is that they have a distorted body image. They may look in the mirror at 85 pounds looking 
frightening to you and me, but they may say to themselves, you know, I could take a little more off my thighs. And that degree of distortion and minimization makes it very difficult to engage them in the process of conversation about this because they're in a kind of denial. And they may have very, very serious issues about weight gain in pregnancy and the littlest amount of weight gain. They may be very compulsive and, and obsessional about the way they eat food, the foods they eat, the amount of exercise. That seems to be a place where I've had more experience in uh, over-exercising rather than withholding food. So somehow in pregnancy, it's clear that you need to feed this pregnancy and feed this baby, but the exercising may not seem as, as toxic. And sometimes we both had experience with patients who can't seem to find a peaceful balance between cutting back on the exercise and allowing their body to, to relax and allowing this baby to grow and thrive. It's really very threatening. And as a practical matter, do you weigh this patient? Do you tell them? I mean, you have to weigh them. Do you tell them what their weight is at each visit? Because I have many patients with eating disorders that when they come in for their annual exam, they tell me, do not tell me what I weigh. My psychiatrist doesn't want me to know that, and it's better for me not to know that. And I go along with that. But it's a little different in pregnancy when you really need to be able to say to someone, you've gained two pounds, you've lost three pounds, this is an issue. So you do weigh the patient, but do you discuss the weight? Or If you have a sort of honest conversation with the patient at the beginning, if they're a new patient to you and you don't really, you know, you're sort of getting a whiff of what's going on with them in the first prenatal visit, you might want to give it some thought for the next time that you meet how you want to raise that issue. Gathering the history, establishing an open line of communication with the patient so that you're not having these secret concerns about them, that you're not sharing and they don't have an open forum to discuss the, the anxiety that they face. And then saying, I would expect you to gain X number of pounds during this pregnancy. Um, how does it feel for you to hear that? And they might say, oh, my God, I thought you would say I was only supposed to gain eight pounds or, uh, no, that's pretty much what I was expecting. And I've been talking with my therapist about how to deal with that. And so depending on their response, I might think uh, come up with a strategy, you know, even to include them and to say, well, what would work for you? If I tell you every time you come in how much you weigh, would that make you anxious? Or if I say to you, you're right on track, and I only let you know if I think there's a problem, if you're gaining too much or not gaining enough, would that be a better road to go with you? Because I want to be sure that you're seeing a nutritionist or blah, 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 whatever you want. You're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nahama Dresner about treating the woman with a psychiatric issue who then develops an obstetric or gynecologic problem. Well, I'd like to move away from the pregnant patient and talk about the woman who is having issues with a hypoactive sexual desire. And this is common anyway in women in various points in their life, but I think the challenge is a little different in the patient who's on a psychotropic medication. So can you talk a little bit about which of the psychotropic medications may induce hypoactive sexual desire or issues with orgasm, achieving orgasm, and then how you deal with that. It's a very common, uh, obviously it's a very common problem in gynecologic patients, period, but it's a, it's an extremely common problem given that many, many psychotropics affect a sexual functioning in women causing a lower libido, less interest in sex, and delayed orgasm. The most important thing is to get a history. Frequently, a patient complains of a change in their libido after they've been prescribed a medication, but the mental health professional or the gynecologist may 
may not have ever asked about their libido beforehand. So it looks like it's a new problem, but it may not be a new problem at all. In fact, when patients say to me, report to me that they have low interest in sex or that they're really not interested in sex after I prescribe a medication, I'm very clear to point out to them, yeah, but you know, when we talked about this, um, when you first came in two weeks ago, you mentioned that you were only having sex with your husband once a month and you weren't really ever having an orgasm and it wasn't something that you were particularly interested in. So it's extremely important to have, you know, sort of a basis for comparison and that means asking before we prescribe medications. In the case of a patient like that who's already on medication, coming to a gynecologist and saying, I think it's my hormones or, you know, what can you suggest for me? What kind of evaluation can you do? You know, sometimes patients are on medications that they need to be on and we need to figure out a way to work around the side effects. So if a brittle or fragile patient or someone who's been very difficult to treat is finally stable on a medication that impacts their libido, I'd be hard-pressed to say, well, let's throw all that away in favor of improving your libido. I'd say, let's see what more we can do to bring your libido around and continue to have the stability in terms of your mental health and your functioning at least for 6 to 12 months before we make a change. So that's a place where I would definitely use a colleague who is experienced in hormonal treatments or other sorts of interventions for uh, problems with libido. I think the other piece that's extremely important to remember is that most problems with libido in women are psychological. They're extremely difficult to measure and that they're very much related to uh, tension or anger in the marital situation or between the partners. I wish to thank our guest, Dr. Muhammad Dresner, for helping us understand these challenges surrounding identifying and treating women in which gynecologic and psychiatric issues interface. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.